Fasten your seatbelts to be a bumpy night. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to ride. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you. I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now, go to the window, open it, and stick your head out of hell. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Welcome to the David Pollock Show. Show. We're back live. It's Monday night at 7 p.m. Just had a great uh, little segment with the American adversary, Chris Hart over there. He is one of the best in the business, guys. I mean, he always has the great uh, everything he wants to talk about. I could talk about for hours. He always pulls up all the great articles. I'm like, man, this is good stuff. But uh, so it's great to be with you. I missed you guys last week. I hope you guys had a good Memorial Day. I um, hope you liked the pre-recorded show. We had an interesting conversation about Ukraine being disarmed. Um, we're going to have uh, Mark back on our show. If you listened last week, he's a brilliant uh, constitutional lawyer. We have lots to talk about with him. So, well, we're back live and I'm happy to be with you here. We got a lot to talk about some debt ceiling. I mean, we're going to talk about the debt ceiling. We're going to talk about Ukraine. Um, there's this issue going on. I guess Trump is admitting now, according to CNN, that he has classified documents. We'll see about that. We're going to talk about Twitter spaces, RFK Jr. There's a lot we're going to talk about tonight. It's going to be exciting. But first, let me, let me, <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw this. I, I mean, of course you did. Everybody's seen Joe Biden tripping over a sandbag. But what's really interesting about it, and I don't want to make fun of the guy, um, but what's so funny, at times something like this happens, everybody, of course, starts asking about whether or not, um, you know, it's is he okay? Is something wrong with him? You know, and then there was this one thing about his shoes. So people were talking. So there's all of you know if he has. Look, the White House doctor says apparently he's fine. I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to sit on the outside and be like something's wrong with him. Um, clearly, he's not as sharp as he used to be. Um, but I mean, I remember when Trump used to drink water with two hands. They're like, did he have a stroke? I think, you know, Marco Rubio drooled once. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to sit here and play doctor on TV or, or, or on radio or whatever. Um, but I found it really interesting. He falls over and he has these shoes and they're like, those are supports that they put on people's shoes with Parkinson's. <laughs> I figure presidents have like fancy shoes, but either way, he trips over the sandbag and pointed at it. But whatever, I'm, I'm glad. I mean, I know we joke about it. It is, it is hard to see uh, a person, you know, aging in office. Um, there is a lot of questions with um, whether or not he's going to be able to, you know, be healthy. Um, I, I guess we'll see what happens. Um, this is other thing I wanted to talk to you guys about. Some strange things before I get into the meat and potatoes of things. Have you guys heard about passport bros? I, I saw this over the weekend. I thought it was hilarious and I wanted to share it with you guys. Apparently there's this thing. Women are getting really upset. Um with American men who are dimming from other countries. Apparently men are getting sick of like women with not having traditional values. So they're going to countries where women are a little bit more, I guess, I don't know, I don't even want to say submissive, but like a little bit more traditional. I don't know what you'd want to say. And, um, but anyway, so we're calling them passport bros. They're like, what's wrong with women in the United States? Anyway, Google it. It's something interesting if you want to laugh. Um, <laughs> you know, it is what it is. Um, I'm going to jump right into it here. I want to talk about the debt ceiling. I'm sure you guys have seen um, this. I guess on Saturday, um, we had uh, Joe Biden sign into law the debt bill. And, you know, this passed the House. 
you know, they fought about it for a while after threatening everybody of catastrophic collapse. Um, after threatening everybody with all these things, horrible things that were going to happen, eventually, I'm going to talk about this in a second, went to the Senate. Of course, they tried to tough with it and threatening the student loan forgiveness. And, you know, eventually they gave up. And Joe Biden signed it on uh, on January, I mean, on, on June 3rd, this Saturday. So now we're in a situation here uh, where now this debt ceiling is passed. And, and let's talk about what was in it. Now, let me remind you, we had an election. You know, it wasn't the red tsunami, it wasn't even a red wave, it was a red trickle. Ronna McDaniel remains, of course, chair of the, of the National Party, but that's fine. So we finally have a majority in the House. The Democrats have had this majority in the House for, you know, years under Trump. And what did they do with the slim majority? Whatever they wanted. They didn't, they didn't back down from a single fight. They even got impeachment. I mean, the Democrats had whatever they want. They did everything they wanted. And now the Republicans get the House. I think the American public is thinking, okay, cool. Now, you know, they have some control over some of this stuff. And the Democrats can be in the minority, and they're still winning. And that's what's the interesting part about this debt deal is. Now, look, there is no thing as a catastrophic default. They wanted to make you feel like this was... Uh, like, a, what do they call it? A government shutdown, you know, where they're, oh, funding stops. And I remember under Obama when they had this big government shutdown, they put like tape around the national parks just to kind of make it hurt. You can't go see the Washington Monument. We have no budget for that, even though it like sticks up in the air all the time. So we, <laughs> you have this situation where this is going to be like a shutdown. Memos are going out. People may not get paid. You may not get your social security benefits, which by the way, you know, all those funds are already allocated. So they make it, and then anytime you hear the media talk about this, it's catastrophic collapse. We avoided a catastrophic collapse. We're talking about raising the debt ceiling. Something totally different. Understand something. We have a certain amount of money we can spend, okay? Once we go, oh, well, you know what? We can't spend any more money. Like in our family and in your family at home, those of you listening or some of those of you watching later, when you run out of money, you can't go to your credit card company and be like, hey, I know I hit my limit. I'm maxed out on my credit card, but I really want that new whatever it is. Oh, yeah, sure. No problem, Mr. Pollock. Uh, we're just going to raise your limit. How much do you need? A couple trillion? No problem. Uh, we don't get to do that as Americans. But somehow the federal government, not only can they tax us, take our money, do what they want with it, then they can spend more than they take in and then keep raising and raising and raising the amount that they get to borrow on our behalf. Mind you, we're $30 trillion. I, how much money is that? I, I mean, you know, like so when your kids talk about, um, when they talk about money and they have like no concept of it. And those of you kids at home, they're like, they're like, daddy, I want that. Whatever. You, you know, I'm like, okay, well, how much are you going to pay me for it? They're like, I'm going to give you $7. Like it's the most money in the world. Or, or they'll say one quadrillion billion. The government acts like that with no concept of what 30 trillion. How are we ever going to pay back? $30 trillion? I mean, how much taxes do you have to raise? I, I've heard people, and I don't know how they come up with these numbers, but like, oh, that's 200 something thousand dollars for every, how they come up with that. But still, if that's true, man, I hope I get to $200,000 someday in my life. <laughs> Give it to pay the, the uh, government back. So we're talking about an enormous amount of money that just keeps going up and up and up. And every time we spend the money, they keep coming with all these great reasons why we need to borrow money again, or it'll be catastrophic. Government, what is so catastrophic about not spending more money than you have? I, it's catastrophic if you don't. 
Like, it's catastrophic if you keep doing what you're doing. Stop wasting taxpayer money. Let's look at what's in this debt ceiling deal. deal. And by the way, this is the best thing. Do you remember they were fighting about raising the debt ceiling like a trillion dollars or two trillion dollars? This is the deal Republicans got. The deal. They didn't raise a number. They suspended it completely <laughs> until 2025. So go nuts, government. Borrow as much money as you'd like. No cap until 2025. I'm not kidding. This is true. So they've just suspended. Why argue over a number? Like, why give you a credit limit? The government has just been given one of those American Express black cards. You know, the one thing, no limit. You throw it down on the bar in a college town, and you can buy everybody a round of drinks. Never have to pay the bill. Unlimited limit. Good job. And I think you guys remember when McCarthy was, um, I think, when was this? Back months ago, when McCarthy, before he was speaker. He's saying, if we get the majority, there's not going to be a blank check for Ukraine. I remember saying this. No blank check. No blank check. Well, in the deal Republicans got, there's no caps on defense spending. You know what that is? You know where we give money to Ukraine from, right? The defense budget. You know what that is? A blank check for Ukraine. All right, cool. So now we have no debt limit, no a check for Ukraine. This is getting good, right? Then here's the, here's the good one. We really got something in this one, guys. You know what we got? All the unspent money that we didn't use for COVID, we're gonna give back to the government, okay? So that means the money that we didn't spend, spend. let me say that again. The money we didn't spend on COVID, that we weren't spending on COVID, that we shouldn't be COVID, we're not gonna spend it. That's a big win, guys. I hope you, uh, I hope you could breathe a sigh. Remember those 87,000 IRS? Remember the ones we were gonna defund? We need 87,000 Border Patrol agents, not 87. That's what all the Republicans said. Well, guess what? We still got 87,000 IRS agents. They, I think they took $6 billion out of, out of, or some low number out of what I got to look in my notes about how much. It was barely nothing. They still got the IRS agents. Okay, guys? Best part, student loan debt relief when it went to the Senate, no restriction on it. So student loans are going to be forgiven as long as the Supreme Court gives Joe Biden the go-ahead with the executive order. And this is the thing. This is the big win for the Republicans that Democrats are fuming about. There's no new tax hikes. No new tax hikes for Democrats in the uh, debt bill. No new tax hikes. So they can still argue about tax hikes, but we're not going to do it in association with the debt bill. And this is Republicans. Do I need to remind you that Republicans have the majority? They don't have to raise taxes ever want to. We can shut the government down to not if we don't want to. How this is a win, for no idea. So this is what you got, ladies and gentlemen, for voting. You got a speaker that was almost not even placed. Maybe he shouldn't have been. You have the one opportunity for us to have a power play. One opportunity that we've had so far. And what did we do? We folded like origami. Those are those little Japanese, you know, paper things. People make little birdies and stuff. In case you don't speak Japanese. So <laughs> they just gave up. I mean, we got nothing, nothing. The border stands wide open, no entitlement. We've got no tax relief. The student loans forgiveness is still going through. IRS still has their money and there's no cap. This is like, anyway, we're gonna go to a quick break. 
And when I get back, we're going to talk more about the debt deal. And I got some other things I want to talk to you guys about. I want to talk to you about whether McCarthy is going to keep his job. I want to talk to you about some exciting things with oil prices and OPEC. Man, I tell you guys, we're really winning today, and I'm going to tell you all about it. So stay tuned to The David Pollack Show. I will be here right after this break. With today's economic environment, it's never been more important to secure your hard-earned wealth for you and your family's future. FinSec Life works to offer industry-leading customer service to help successful individuals and businesses protect their wealth. Whether it's a business succession plan, estate liquidity, or a variety of life and long-term care policies, FinSec Life can help deliver peace of mind, knowing that if something happens, you or your company is taken care of. Visit FinSecLife.com. That's F-I-N-S-E-C Life.com. Securities offered through Valmark Security, Inc., member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Valmark, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. FinSec Life is a separate entity from Valmark Securities, Inc. and Valmark Advisors, Inc. Now it's time for your Mortgage Minute, brought to you by the Joe Onofre Mortgage Team. Hey guys, Joe Onofre here. Can't buy a home because you recently went from a W-2 wage position to 1099 or self-employed? With our non-traditional lending options, that simply isn't the case any longer. We can potentially use a bank statement loan program, which allows us to use your deposits into your bank account as your form of income. We can take it one step further, and with enough of a down payment, we have programs that won't require verifying income at all. So why wait when you can buy your family's dream home today and not wait another year to qualify for traditional lending? Like what you hear? Let's chat more. Give me a ring at 407-720-8514 or contact me online at LenderJoe.com. NMLS ID number 147-3557. To surrender cause you feel the feeling oh. It's fire, it's freedom, it's flying open oh. It's a picture in the pulpit and your body Hey everyone, Thomas is Corey Mills here Look, I, uh, we did everything we could We needed this bill, we pointed out the flaws in it We tried to basically hold this bill up with one of the amendments Or one of the actual standalones that I'd put forward uh, Bottom line, I should tell you everything that you need to know And the fact that our actual House majority Republican, but yet the majority of the votes in this actual debt ceiling increase was Democrat, not Republican. Let that sink in for a minute. We're not out of the fight yet. God bless you. That was Congressman Corey Mills from CD7, one of the fighters who voted no, stuck up for his value, said exactly what he said he was going to do. He did it. Promises made, promises kept. And I'm proud to be joined right now by Congressman Corey Mills on The David Pollock Show. Welcome to the show, Congressman Mills. Thank you so much for having me, David. Yeah, I know you were voting tonight, and I know um, you're, you're, you squeezed out some time to talk to our listeners, and I really do appreciate that. I know you're doing the work, and you don't skip votes like some of these other people. And uh, I was just talking about Republicans didn't get in this debt deal, and I played some audio because I know you were upset about it, too. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the disappointing outcome of this debt ceiling, Bill? Yeah, so, you know, first off, I want to kind of put something in clarification for everyone. You know, the... Leadership in the Republican Party has continued to say that the Limit, Save, Grow Act was a bill that was passed in the House that we were going to utilize as a point of negotiations. And the reality is is that what we uh, subsequently voted on is not a negotiated bill. These are two completely opposite bills, and I'll explain to say this. 
And Limit Save Grow was a one-year increase that had a $1.47 trillion lift, but it also had a $1.2 trillion clawback. That clawback would have been the $500 billion from the executive order that Biden put in place for tuition bail. It would have been the additional unused COVID money. That would have been of the IRS money, which is the $80 billion. But it also, in the Limit Save Grow, we had something called the RAINS Act. Remember, you know, as a former business owner, the one thing I know is that it's simple math. Your account receivables have to exceed your accounts. And the only way that you get your account receivables bigger is to go ahead and drive more revenue, which means for us as Americans, a higher gross domestic production output. So what we did is we included something called the RAINS Act that would have actually have limited the amount of uh, bureaucratic overregulations and allowed small and medium and large-sized businesses to be able to operate without the continual overregulation of NEPA and other types of organizations. So that in itself are two vast changes. The other thing was is that the Limit Save Grow Act had 87 permit reforms. Remember, our first bill that we voted on, which is HR1, was a bill to get us back to not just energy independence, but energy dominance. It was our Domestic Energy Production Act. And one of the key things in order to try and help our oil and gas and uh, our fossil fuel industries is to try and help to get around some of the bureaucracy of the EPA and others. This bill would have helped with some of that actual uh, permitting. So now let me tell you some of the vast contrast. When you look at the the bill that just uh, got voted on that I was a hard no on, First off, it has no ceiling. It only has a date, which is January 1st, 2025, which extends out the entire period of Joe Biden's presidency, thereby not allowing us to have two bites of the apple that would have allowed us when you only have House, you don't have the Senate, you don't have the White House. That's our bit of leverage in negotiation. Yeah. Sure, our conservative bills like HR2, the you know uh, most conservative border bill, gets across the line. So that's the first thing. The second thing, the clawbacks, where we were going to repeal – 100% of the IRS money, this only claws back $1.35 billion of the $80 billion. And then there is a $10 billion that can be reallocated per year. So let's just say in the best-case scenario that we pull back $21.4 billion out of the 80. That is still more than enough money for them to hire their 87,000 deep state IRS agents that we already know target the middle and lower class three to five times more than they do the upper class because they know that the middle class usually can't hire a lawyer in order to try and go after them for some of these frivolous claims that you know they, they, they say that you owe. The other thing is the RAINS Act I just talked about, gone. Totally eliminated from this bill, not a part of it, dead in the water. So those two in itself are bad. Then let's look at the 87 permit. The 87 permit, bills in the limit save grow, would allow us to have had the growth that we needed in this bill, four. Now, granted, one of those four is the Builders Act, and that is a good permitting act, but it doesn't help us with regards to H.R. 1. It doesn't help us with our oil and gas industry. It doesn't help us with uh, getting around some of the bureaucratic tape that's actually stifling our production at home. So, again, when I, when I was a, a business owner and I was actually an executive chairman for our board, if I would have told my shareholders, hey, I went in with 87 things that we wanted and I only came out with four, let me tell you something. I wouldn't have held my job for very long. And so not only to mention the fact that I went in to try and eliminate the entire $80 billion, and I got $1.35 of it. So these two bills, that in itself are massive contrasts. But then we go a step further, and they say, oh, well, we're going to be able to hold them accountable with the 12 appropriations bills. 
And while that would be true if you had a ceiling or you had spending caps, which is not actually in this bill, then you do that. The problem, however, is that the OMB director, who works for Joe Biden, by the way, he can actually – there's two ways that he can actually waive the requirements to be able to go around the mandatories on spending and basically kind of go around the appropriations committee. So there's no checks and balance. There's broad languages. There's a reduction in our amount of permits that we can actually get. There's a two-year rather than one year, so you only get one bite of the apple, and that's gone. And then the last part of it is that they put in a welfare reform that will draw more people into the welfare program, which, again, our social welfare programs is not created to try and keep Americans in poverty. It's to try and lift them out when they're in need so they can keep moving. Now, one of the things we did get in there was work requirements. Every able-bodied man and woman will have to commit to at least 20 hours in order to actually qualify, but only up to the age of 51. Next year, only to the age of 53. Next year, only to the age of 55 with a two-year increment. That sounds great until you realize that that whole thing is not going to be codified and put into law. It sunsets in 2030. Hmm. So that means that current work requirements that all of us wanted in this bill basically will sunset by 2030. So you don't have a fixed ceiling. You don't have the permit reform. You don't have two bites at the apple. You don't have an ability to try and push conservative bills. You have a proper codified and in statute uh, throughout the period for the work requirements. That sunsets in 2030. Tell me, what, outside of the fact that it's going to see a 4 to $6 trillion increase, was good for the American people? And where did the Republicans really win in this negotiation? That's exactly what I was saying in the entire first segment. It was It's like control of the House. And this bill has nothing for it. We didn't. It's like the biggest loss in history. I mean, we didn't even increase the death ceiling. We just didn't even have one. But how do you do you that? A guy <laughs> who can't make it up the stairs of Air Force One or right. can't make it on the platform of the Air Force Academy. And he just outplayed us in negotiations. Did we even negotiate? I, I don't know how you go into a negotiation with we're not going to raise the debt ceiling unless we get, get X, Y, Z. You to... could have went into the negotiation with two pints of rocket chocolate, like chocolate ice cream, <laughs> and that would have already have gotten us off on, on the right foot because he wouldn't have even been thinking twice about the rest of the negotiation. I, I mean, it would have been a better start. So so what do, what do Republicans have to say to Americans? I mean, I know a lot of people are disappointed about this. They're they're happy that you didn't vote for it. And we have fighters like you, newly elected Republican congressmen, who are doing exactly what they say. But, man, that's there's not enough of you. So how do well, we win? Well, another thing is, is that I even put another proposal on the table. So I even went a step further, and I said, okay, I understand that maybe they felt pressure. So I put something called Back to the Table Act out there as a bill to vote on the floor that would have given us an extension that would have covered all of our current Treasury obligations without any additional spending that would allow us to at least get back to the table, start pre another negotiation, which was totally ignored. But the whole thing is, is that we have to look at even – and I, I, I left this out – but even that $500 billion for the student loans. I mean I was pleased to see the bill was starting to step in the right direction, and it, it was having originally an indefinite pause on student loan repayment, which, by the way – that right there in itself was costing almost $4.3 billion every month for taxpayers. So this is, this is a huge deal. And so, you know, the bottom line of this one, it essentially leaves the majority of that in there. And we actually had the ability in the limits they've grow that it would have actually have codified that no executive order can be utilized, whether it's this president or any future president, to abuse the executive order for things that go that bypass Congress, such as the bailout, which, again, this is going to be challenged in court. 
and it probably will be overturned. But the point is that we could have actually, in Limit Save Grow, it was a statute that would have actually have said that a, a president cannot utilize the executive orders for these types of things. That's one of the things we wanted to fix, the abuse of the executive orders. And it's happened in Republican and Democrat presidents alike, but this would have actually have gotten a correction. This would have actually have seen us get to prosperity. This would have had the necessary cuts that people wanted. This would have actually have seen us go forward with the necessary reforms that help our industry to be able to grow and our markets and our businesses. I mean, the whole thing on Limit, Save, Grow is probably the best debt ceiling bill that you could have ever had. We should have not have come back to the table. We should have said, you know what? The Democrat Senate and the White House needs to do their jobs. The onus is not on us. We've passed a bill. And so instead of being, oh, I want to control the negotiations, which went poorly in my, in my opinion, we should have allowed the lower and upper chamber to have done their jobs to sign amendments or to vote it down, to, to vote it to pass, and then get to a point where we could send it to the White House as opposed to trying to take on us directly. That in itself, in my opinion – was a huge mistake. And Chuck Schumer, I'm sure, as the, the majority leader over in the Senate, was very happy in licking his chops because if the deal goes great as it did for him, guess what? Look at the great success. And if the deal went bad, hey, this was a negotiation between the House and the White House. He basically just cleaned his hands of any of the responsibility on this. And instead, the Democrats had to eat it. And, and the Democrats gave it to him. And, and, here's the, and, and here's the deal, or the Republicans gave it to him. And here's the thing. What were Republicans so afraid of? They kept saying it was a catastrophic default. But, Corey, can you, or Congressman, can you explain so, what, what yeah, really so that, would have happened? That's absolutely false. First off, the January 1st arbitrary line that was put in place wasn't a true thing to begin with. I would have made Secretary Yellen demonstrate exactly why she said that January 1st is the cutoff period. And here's why I would ask that. One. We're taking in more revenue per month right now than we ever have in history. The second thing is, is that revenue that's going to come in from the April and May time frame, not to mention that some people request an extension on their taxes. So we would have reflected tax revenue in the month of June as well. I realistically think that this could have gone out all the way to July. But let's go back to my original statement, which is that we're taking in more revenue now than we ever have, which means we've already verified that we had enough money to cover VA payments, to cover Social Security, and to cover Medicare and Medicaid. So there was no risk, as they were fear-mongering here in the House, about, oh, if we get to the cliff, that means that you guys are completely cut off on your checks. That is absolutely not true whatsoever. So the the whole point is is that we knew that this arbitrary timeline, that what we should have done was pushed up to the real timeline, and you'd have seen a completely different movement out of the Democrats and out of the White House to find a deal. But the reality is, is that they had set an arbitrary timeline that the House Republicans had fit into. And so we were working on a false clock to begin with. But I, I, we should have been willing. You're 100 percent right. To have gone to it. I got to take a hard break, Congressman Mills. Thank you so much for calling in. Um, you didn't let us thank down, you. and um, keep fighting for us, guys. Right back. Uh, we're going to be talking about Ukraine. We got left Pars- uh, partners coming in, and we're going to have an exciting discussion. So don't go anywhere. With SRN News, I'm Keith Peters reporting. The House Oversight Chairman says he plans to move forward with holding FBI Director Christopher Ray in contempt of Congress. Representative James Comer says a more than hour-long briefing he received Monday from FBI officials about an unverified law enforcement tip against President Biden isn't enough to comply with a subpoena. Republicans are demanding a copy of the document that a contains unverified allegations against President Biden and his family. 
The pilot of the business jet that flew over Washington and crashed in Virginia appeared to be slumped over and unresponsive, according to the fighter jet pilots who shadowed the aircraft as it made its way through D.C. airspace. The plane then crashed in a remote area of southwest Virginia near the town of Montebello. Four people died in that crash. More details at srnnews.com. Hey friends, David Pollock here. If you're craving the best soft serve ice cream around, Topper's Creamery's got you covered. Serving the Apopka community for over a decade, Topper's is known for the finest old-fashioned custard-style soft serve ice cream in a variety of flavors, from their French vanilla exciting specials like German chocolate cake. But the experience doesn't end there. Be sure to grab a fresh baked waffle cone or a sundae topped with my favorite, the fresh baked brownies. They even offer pup cups for your four-legged friends. So hurry in to Topper's Creamery in Apopka, South 512 Hunt Club Road. Make sure to tell them Davidson. Are you an insurance agent or property manager looking for a reliable and accurate property inspection? Floridian Property Consultant specializes in citizens' insurance packages and replacement cost appraisals, so you can get bound quickly, easily, and accurately. FP's inspectors will make sure each assessment meets all the insurance carrier standards while ensuring that you don't pay for more than you need. Work with a company that respects your time and budget as much as you do. Visit online at floridianconsultants.com. That's floridianpropertyconsultants.com. David Pollock here. I hope you're enjoying the show. If you're looking for more information on any of our sponsors, or perhaps you want to hear a replay of a past show, make sure to visit thedavidpollockshow.com. There you'll also find just articles, links to our social media, and opportunities to become a sponsor yourself. So remember to visit thedavidpollockshow.com. Despacito, tu puedo despacito, deja que te diga cosas o para que te acuerdes si no estás conmigo. the david pollard show gabe really likes when despacito's on he's always dancing back there you guys might not know but he's you know i give him so much work to do i make it you know i'm dynamic i give him audio clips i'm always shouting things at him changing things and he always does a job so i always bring him his uh what is the mo the karma macchiato <laughs> before macchiato. yeah macchiato before everything so i think the coffee starts he, he starts feeling it Bieber comes on. Can't help himself. <laughs> Appreciate you, Gabe. So welcome back to the show. We're going to pivot a little bit, and we're going to talk about, uh, you, you guys, uh, listen, we got to talk about Ukraine. This has been going on a while now. I mean, Americans, some, some Americans are excited that we're out there helping out. Some people got their Ukraine flags on their Facebook status. Some people are like, we shouldn't send any more money. Um, the reality is what's going on in Ukraine is a, is a bigger uh, example of the unrest that's going on in the entire world right now with weak leadership in Washington, D.C. I mean, anytime you have strong leaders and weak leaders, the strong leaders will take advantage of weak leaders. And Ukraine is just the beginning, which is one of the reasons why we have to make sure that Russia is not able to just do whatever they want with Ukraine, because China's watching very closely. What we do, how much money we spend, you know, all eight, we elect people to debate those those things, and uh, we'll see how that all irons out. But I'm sure you've seen it. I mean, the, the war is, is turning up. Currently, Ukraine is attacking Moscow. I don't know if they really are, um, but definitely Putin is going to use that as an excuse to turn up the attacks in Ukraine. Just keep a close eye on it. We'll see what we can do, and you know, hopefully we can uh, help uh, fight off some uh, Russian aggression in one way or the other. But I wanted to bring in somebody who—this issue is very important to them. He's Ukrainian-born American businessman. Um, his name's Lev Parnas. 
You might know him from uh, 2020. Uh, he worked with uh, Rudy Giuliani. He did some work with uh, Ukraine. Uh, he worked on behalf of the uh, Trump campaign role, but he was hired to basically kind of help with relations between uh, Russia and Ukraine. Welcome to the show, Mr. Parnas. Hi, thank you for having me, David. It's my pleasure. Thank you for coming on. I know I know you know a lot about what's going on in Ukraine. And I wanted to get your take because I know you wrote an article. Um, this was back in uh, February of 2023. You have an interesting take on Ukraine and the reason why we have an issue in Ukraine. And you're actually thankful um, that uh, Joe Biden is, is in the White House because you think it would have actually been much worse. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit. And I'll talk about your take on what's going on in Ukraine and what Americans need to know about what we should do, um, how, how we should be involved in it. Absolutely. I mean, uh, in my article, I wrote uh, one of the reasons why uh, I'm thankful that Joe Biden wasn't president. I think uh, any president at the time would have been better than what Trump was planning on doing with Ukraine. Um, I had a very big role in that. I was working for President Trump and Rudy Giuliani in Ukraine to go out there and find all this information about Hunter and Joe Biden and play an intricate part in all of that. And uh uh, in the process of this going on, uh, President Trump was very turned off by Ukraine. Uh, he was very angry at them. He was angry at their administration. He was angry at the president. And uh, really, uh, in, in backdoor talks, uh, wasn't planning on helping Ukraine in any way. And I think it's one of the reasons uh, Putin attacked Ukraine. Uh, he had and thought that, uh, first of all, he didn't think that uh, the U.S. and NATO would stand so strong behind Ukraine and give them all these uh, weapons and all this money, because if they didn't, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Ukraine would have been already part of Russia. Uh, and second, I think uh, he really believed that Trump was going to win the election again. And if that would have happened, I don't think Trump would have gave him any money or any uh, necessary weapons to defend themselves. And we would have had the same result by you know uh, Russia taking over Ukraine. So in a way, I think that uh, really big thing that helped uh, save the world in a way, because I think uh, President Putin is uh, another part of history that will go down as somebody like Hitler was, even though Hitler was somebody that killed and destroyed so many people uh, because he wasn't stopped in time until it was already too late and uh, people entered, uh, other countries entered the war to stop him like ourselves. I think with uh, Putin, uh, he didn't get the chance. If he would have gotten the chance to take over Ukraine, it would have been a very strategical point for him to then to start looking at taking over other Eastern European countries and reestablishing, which he always wanted to do, the old Soviet Union, which would then give him tremendous strength and power, not only through the energy resources that they have, but then also military-wise uh, to be able to cause a lot of havoc in the world. Is that, so you think that's that's Putin's end game then? It's just to reorient to the old Soviet Union as he can. And if that's his, if that what what's going to stop him? Is it money to Ukraine? Is it supplies to Ukraine? Or is this just the beginning? I mean, is is the fact that Ukraine's not in NATO the only thing that's going to stop him? NATO is. I mean, what do you what do you think? Where does this end? Unfortunately, I don't think NATO is really stopping him. I think uh, this is just uh, uh, you know he's a very when you say endgame, this was the beginning of the game for him. When he entered uh, power and became president of Russia, that was the very, he's an old KGB guy. Everybody around him are hardcore communists and KGB guys. And uh, his plan all along was to unify the old Soviet Union. Anybody that was, that knew any geo enough, he was just buying his time. 
unfortunately, he never was, had the window of opportunity to do that because uh, it didn't matter who the president of the United States was, uh, Republican or Democrat, we always stood strong with uh, NATO and, and our Eastern European countries and always, you know, try, uh, wouldn't give them the opportunity. What happened when Trump came into office, you know, he started disrupting NATO. Again, that's up to decisions, right, wrong, or indifferent on who believes what, but that's what happened. You know, he was he almost dismantled NATO at the time. Uh, he also got into a very, you know, personal war with Ukraine because of the Hunter, uh, you know, investigation into Joe Biden and into Hunter Biden. And Putin realized that that was his opportunity if he's ever going to have one because, you know, he's not getting any younger. And, uh, you know, that's why he invaded. As far as the end result, I think this is we're still a long way away from it. Uh, it's, it's hard to say because uh uh, the problem is that Putin uh, is not going to stop uh, unless he reclaims what he wants, and that's, you know, uh, Ukraine and at least a big chunk of it to start off with, you know. Uh, and it depends if how long we'll be able to ourselves with NATO be able to support and give the, uh, you know, money and uh, weapons. Again, we have elections coming up. Uh, a lot of uh, presidential candidates that are running on the ballot are you know, talking about stopping funding Ukraine. I think if that happens, that just escalates and will become a lot quicker uh, because even though Ukraine is fighting for their lives and have uh, the willpower and, are, you know, the people are fighting and doing what they can, uh, it's one thing to have the willpower. You still need to be able to support yourselves with the weapons and the military equipment to be able to withstand the onslaught that Russia, you know, keeps uh, putting on them. Now, and so the listeners know, um, you know, there was a period of time where you worked uh, loosely with Donald Trump, um, with President Trump, um, through, I guess, through Rudy Giuliani. And there was a time where, you you know, so you're not happy with, with uh, President Trump. And I think the listeners need to understand that is that you were kind of swept up um, in, a, in a legal process um, as a result of your association. And, and in, in the end, I think you still feel, and, and, and you said this in the article, feel like what's going on in Ukraine um, is really a respect that President Trump had for Putin because him uh, Putin reminds uh, Donald Trump of his father. So you talk about um, Republican politicians campaigning to stop the weapons and medical supplies, and you, you say it's in a way to please Trump um, like Giuliani does. And so your position, and tell me if I'm wrong, is sort of that the politics that the, the position that Donald Trump is taking with respect to Ukraine is is bad for Ukraine and also bad for anybody who cares about what's going to happen to Ukraine. Um, am I correct about that? Absolutely. I mean, I worked not only through Giuliani, I worked directly for President Trump on behalf of President Trump uh, when it came down to uh, what was happening in Ukraine uh, and going on with the investigation to turn Joe Biden. So uh, it was directly for President Trump alongside with uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani. And, uh, yeah, fortunately, uh, uh, you just listen to what he says now. I mean, he doesn't give you a full detail of how he would stop the war. He just tries to play on people's uh, the hype of the, the division that we have in our country between Republicans and Democrats and the way everybody's going to each other's throats by saying he's going to the war in 24 hours. Now, any normal, uh, logical and, uh, individual could understand that that's an impossibility unless he was just going to hand over Ukraine to uh, Putin, because there's no way that there's nothing he could give Putin that would stop Ukraine. 
uh, him invading Ukraine. There's nothing he could offer him. There's no, they don't have that close relationship where, you know, people think that, oh, him and Putin have a relationship. They really never had a relationship. Uh, Putin really didn't really respect President Trump. And Trump grew up in an authoritarian uh, household. His father was an authoritarian. Uh, Trump also grew up in in a world where was you know he had to deal with a lot of uh, shady individuals like mobsters. I mean, you know, you couldn't build a, uh, a a house, let alone apartment buildings and sky rises in New York City, without dealing with the likes of like Sammy the Bulgarano or John Gotti, some of the most infamous uh, mobsters out there. So Trump has a, a very liking to those people. He believes they're very strong and they're powerful, and that's why you can see like that he has the respect for Kim Jong Un, for Xi, for you know Putin. He more than he has respect for any you know other uh, leaders out there like in the in the world. I, I mean, and it's an interesting perspective. Now, look, we're a conservative radio show and a, Canadian, uh, and a conservative station. A lot of people love and respect Donald Trump. But at the same time, um, you have personal experience with um, President Trump. You've worked for him. You've worked with him. You've sat across the table from him. So your perspective is certainly important for people because there are some people who might have concerns about President Trump. And that's fair, too. And you offer a perspective um, that people don't get to hear a lot of the times. And um, it's an interesting take on um, on 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 your experience with him and, and who you are and, and I, yeah, I find it very interesting and it's a it's a worthy conversation to have. Um, let me ask you. In a, you have to keep, go ahead. I was going to just mention, David. You have to keep in mind. I mean, I was a conservative and, and you know, in some ways, still you know half conservative. I'm not a leftist liberal, and yeah. I, you know, and I would wish that we had somebody that could come in there and do it. I don't believe President Trump was a real conservative. I think uh, he has a lot of conservative beliefs in him. He did a lot of good policies, and he could have been one of the greatest presidents ever if he didn't let the ego and his uh, power trip where, you know, instead of negotiating and trying to get things done by just, you know, going full force with everything. It didn't matter if, you know, some girl would say something uh, bad on Twitter, he would respond to anything and everything. I mean, that's just not what a president does. Uh, and it... And- and, and a lot of people, I mean, there are a lot of people who share those concerns as well. I mean, a lot of the big criticisms we hear um, from people is they're concerned about the way Trump does business. They're concerned about, um, you know, some of the, the some of his personality traits. And that's why there are possible candidates, whether it be Ron DeSantis or others. Um, but, you know, it, it, I really appreciate your perspective on it. I appreciate your insight into Ukraine. Um, you guys go check out Alev Parnas. He, he's on Twitter. Um, he wrote this great article that I find Really fascinating. Um, it's in it's in the time it's in time from February thirteenth, twenty twenty three. Um, it's called "How My Work for Trump and Giuliani Sought to Make Ukraine Defenseless." It's an interesting read. Look, you don't have to always agree, um, but at the same time, it's interesting to have, especially during a primary. So, uh, Mr. Parnas, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, we look forward to having you back anytime you'd like to come on. And and, and thank you very much. Absolutely, thank you for having me, David. And thank you to listeners and uh, also. Just to mention, uh, I do know Ron DeSantis very well. I basically made the marriage between him and Trump and had Trump support him to become governor of the state of Florida. I was very close and friends with him, so maybe uh, I'll come on the show one time and we'll discuss him. I would love that. And so we're going to have you on the show back again soon. So thank you very much, Mr. Parnas. We're going we're gonna to hear from you again real soon. <laughs> And stick With today's economic environment, it's never been more important to secure your hard-earned wealth for you and your family's future. FinSec Life works to offer industry-leading customer service to help successful individuals and businesses protect their wealth. 
Whether it's a business succession plan, estate liquidity, or a variety of life and long-term care policies, FinSec Life can help deliver peace of mind, knowing that if something happens, you or your company is taken care of. Visit FinSecLife.com. That's F-I-N-S-E-C Life.com. Securities offered through Valmark Security, Inc., member FINRA, and SIC. Investment advisory services offered through Valmark Advisors, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. FinSec Life is a separate entity from Valmark Securities, Inc. and Valmark Advisors, Inc. David Pollack here. I hope you're enjoying the show. If you're looking for more information on any of our sponsors, or perhaps you want to hear a replay of a past show, make sure to visit thedavidpollackshow.com. There, you'll also find our latest articles, links to our social media, and opportunities to become a sponsor yourself. So remember to visit thedavidpollack.com. With today's economic environment, it's never been more important to secure your hard-earned wealth for you and your family's future. FinSec Life works to offer industry-leading customer service. Full individuals and businesses protect their wealth. Whether it's a business succession plan, estate liquidity, or a variety of life and long-term care policies, FinSec Life can help deliver peace of mind, knowing that if something happens, you or your company is taken care of. Visit FinSecLife.com. That's F-I-N-S-E-C Life.com. Securities offered through Valmark Security, Inc., member FINRA, and SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Valmark Advisors, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. FinSec Life is a separate entity from Valmark Securities, Inc., and Valmark Advisors, Inc. Having a good time, having a good time. Shooting star leaping through the sky like a tiger defying the laws of gravity. And welcome back to our final segment of the David Pollock Show. Man, I love being live. You know, I know we had a good show last week, but man, it's just the energy of knowing you guys are listening. We're talking with each other. Anything can happen. Great guests, great energy. Well, I want a little bit and uh, talk to you guys about something, a new hobby, I guess. You know, the show is not too too old. We've been on the air, I think, I don't even know, eight weeks now or something. I don't know. We're having so much fun. Time is flying. Gabe's doing a great job back there. But, you know, in an effort to promote this show, I'm, I'm, look, I'm on A. I celebrated a couple of weeks, and, and listen, I know to say is not huge like the debt ceiling. The number I'm about to say is admittedly not gigantic, but for me, it's a big deal. But a couple of weeks ago, I told you about the 500 followers I had on Twitter. Well, guys, I hit 1,000 followers on Twitter. Woohoo! <laughs> so I've been trying to find interesting ways of getting our message out to different audiences, and I've been messing around with Twitter, and they got these great things called Twitter spaces. And look, I'm not advertising for Twitter here. Now, I, I will take Twitter as a sponsor, just so you know Elon Musk. But So I've been messing around on these Twitter spaces, and what I found was, and if you guys haven't been to Twitter lately, it's a whole new Twitter since Elon Musk took over. If you're a conservative or if, you, if you're middle, even if, look, I don't care what you are, but if you were on Twitter before and you got sick of kind of the echo chamber of negativity and just comments and, and, and things not appearing when you expect it to and not being able to get to, it's a different Twitter now. I have been back on Twitter, and I really enjoy being there. I'm having some great conversations with people all across the political spectrum. And I've been messing around these in these Twitter spaces. And what they are, they're almost like town halls. And a lot of you guys know Twitter spaces now from when Ron DeSantis is running for president, which, by the way, was not that big of an announcement. Everybody knew he was running for president. So he's like, hey, I'm running for president. We're like, we know. We know, Governor. We know you're running for president. Um, but so everybody knows about these Twitter spaces. Now I've been, I've been playing around on them and I found it's like a, it's like a, it's almost like a radio show, but 
I, I just like Zoom meets a podcast. I don't know how else to describe it. Like, there's a bunch of people on there. You have hosts. You can bring people in the room. Everybody has these conversations. But it's access to people where you would watch Fox News and you only have the nine or ten people that they continually revolve through. The same personalities, the same opinions. Nothing really gets answered or asked. Um, the difference now is that um, you can actually interact with people, all kinds of people, people with followings and and you know influential people, and they're just on there. You raise your hand, you talk to them. It's old town hall and access. It's one of these independent type journalism things that I know I know a lot of our news media has been fearing, but I think Twitter Spaces is revolutionizing revolutionizing the world, and I'm really excited because um, I made friends with this Twitter host. Her name is Sarah, and. She, uh, I, my producer's giving me a, a look. Somebody's on the phone. I'm making sure it's Sarah. So, <laughs> um, I, I met I met one of the Twitter hosts, and we, you know, I, I subscribed to her. her it's C E R R A Sarah. So if you're on Twitter, go find Sarah. She hosts um, Twitter Spaces. I subscribe to her, and she's in a bunch of other Twitter Spaces co-hosting. But she's fantastic. Now she's not a conservative, but she's reasonable. We have great conversations, interesting perspectives, and um, she is on my show tonight. So Twitter host Sarah is on the David Pollack radio show where I host, and it is my honor to have you on here so you can see what I do. Welcome to my show, Sarah. Thank you so much, David. This is so exciting. It's my first radio show. But you do such a good job, and you're kind of a big deal on Twitter. Now, I got 1,000 followers now, maybe 1,006 <laughs> as of the time of the you show. 1,006. Yeah, maybe 1,006. <laughs> and I think you have like, what, 160,000 or something? Oh, less than that, but uh, that's over years. You've only been on Twitter for a little while. I've been on three years. So well, you're still a big deal on Twitter, and your spaces are awesome, and your contributions to spaces are awesome. And um, I wanted to have you on here tonight because, you know, for the listeners at home, when we're talking under Twitter spaces, I was trying to tell uh, a spaces host what Twitter is, uh, I mean, what uh, being on the radio is like. And on Twitter spaces, you know, the people talking, there's interaction, uh, you could talk all day. And you might be surprised to know that I never run out of things to say on Twitter spaces. But I was telling Sarah, I said, when I do this radio show, and, and this is for you guys at home, too, who think I'm just such a professional, which I am. Uh, I prepare a lot for this radio show because I'm so nervous that I'm not going to have something to say when that on-air sign goes on. So I prepare and prepare hours and hours. I have piles of things that I could talk about because I'm so worried that I'm not going to have something to say. So anyway... If you have, if you like the show content, it's because of my tremendous fear and anxiety that I will never have something to say. So, I, Sarah, I thought that got a kick out of that, but um, I never run out of things to say, do I, Sarah? Oh, you certainly don't. <laughs> no, sometimes you have to be reined in on Twitter Spaces. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a rule. It's a three-minute rule. Apparently, it's an unofficial rule that if you talk for more than three minutes, you can get booted. And I violated that rule a few times, haven't I? Well, it's sort of the. Because there's so many speakers, you want to make sure that you're not monopolizing uh, the space. You want everybody to join into the conversation and have a dialogue. And, you know, sometimes people that go on for five or ten minutes, it's just too much in a space, in a large conversation. Yeah. But and it, you're right, though. It allows for people to be able to communicate with each other. What I love about it and, and – I'm, again, this isn't an advertisement for spaces. It's just been really cool to have conversations. Today it was the RFK Jr. Twitter space. Um, it wasn't as big as the DeSantis space. It wasn't nearly as exciting. But still, we had RFK Jr. sitting in a Twitter space taking questions from just about anybody. He was there for two and a half hours. I mean, before Twitter, 
it, this wasn't a moderated debate that was on like with commercial breaks. This was two and a half hours of RFK Jr. and Tulsi Gabbard joined of just talking to people, answering questions. I mean, that's what it's offering. Can you think of some interesting interactions you've had with people in Twitter spaces? Well, I would say that that Twitter space with uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. would be a poor example of what the spirit of spaces is. Um, Typically, spaces are just regular folks like you and I, and we're able to come up onto these stages and have conversations with people like RFK. This one was very, um, it seemed to be molded. It seemed to be very scripted. And there wasn't any pushback. There wasn't any real conversation. And it did seem to be very bland. Now, the spaces where I have joined or where I have hosted, we, there was one that was done with Matt Gates. I was not a host. I was a speaker. And nothing was off table. He took questions from real people like me. And he had no idea what we were going to He didn't set any terms or conditions, nor could he have time to prepare. And that's truly what spaces should be. Yeah, and honestly, I'm hopeful. You know, Elon Musk talks about how, and he talked about today on the RFK space, he talked, um, you know, it's a free speech platform and it's essential to democracy. I am interested to see what the spaces and Twitter is going to be. They just brought an NBC executive. Um, I, th- you know, there's, I don't know what's happened to it, but there was discussion to t- show to Twitter. I think Twitter is definitely going to turn into a very interactive form of media. It might be the future of media. I mean, I don't know how many people are going to sit there and watch a network anymore when you can have specially curated type shows. I mean, right now, Twitter spaces is really just audio. There's no video yet. But I can certainly envision a video component of it where you really have super interactive type, almost like a, a podcast that you can participate in. I really do think it's the future. What do you, where do you think it's going? I think that Twitter will eventually be very competitive with mainstream media. And you're right, the video function is coming. Elon Musk has said spaces will have video. And that, I think, will be a game changer. Why would you turn on uh, CNN, MSNBC, or um, Fox News and watch a talking head interview somebody when you can go on a Twitter space and you can interview them? You can ask them the questions that really matter, not necessarily the questions that they're being asked. Things that are really important to you as an American. And that's what I absolutely loved about some of the spaces that I've been able to do with sitting U.S. congressmen um, and and other high, uh, you know, like executives and, and public officials. It's just something that I think has so much more potential. But it's a narrative destroyer, too. I mean, and that's the thing where the news, the editors set what's going to be newsworthy. The hosts go or the anchors go and discuss what, what the newsworthy item is. Um, there is no dissent. There is no alternative viewpoints. It's what they say it is. And that's what's so cool about Twitter spaces is the narrative is what the narrative is. And it provides an opportunity for people to get news and truth um, from other sources. What's really cool is that, you know, people who I wouldn't even agree with politically a lot of times I end up in spaces with. And when the news isn't filtering the perspective, uh, when the mainstream media isn't filtering the perspective, we're actually able to see eye to eye on a lot of things. And I think there's hope 
um, for dialogue in this country, too, because we're not being told what we're supposed to discuss, but we're being shown what to discuss. I have to run. I have 57 seconds. But, Sarah, can you tell um, my listeners how they can find you, subscribe to you, go into some of your spaces? How can they get? In, how can they find you if they want to talk to the great Sarah Moore? Oh, well, they can come on to Twitter and find me by my handle at E-R-R-A underscore underscore. I also recommend following you as we would never have connected without Twitter spaces. And we sit on the opposite ends of the political spectrum and spaces brings people together. Oh, beautiful. That's right. You can follow me at The Pollock Show because I can't fit the David Pollock Show. Everybody go check out Sarah. Thank you for being part of the show. And everybody, please join us next week, Monday, same place, 7 p.m. Exciting things happening all the time. We haven't even got to talk about OPEC and, and DeSantis and Chris Christie. Oh, man, so much to talk about. Don't go anywhere. Join us next week. Goodbye. Just to do your